Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray, shall we? Ask for God's help this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for a time of worship. Lord, we thank you that we get to study your word now. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us through it. We ask this, Lord, in your name, knowing that no good will come apart from your work in these moments. So God, give us listening ears this morning. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, before we jump into our sermon uh, this morning, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. Let me just acknowledge the heart-wrenching tragedy that's unfolding right now in Afghanistan. The Afghani people in general, but also our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, are facing extreme danger right now, and they need our prayers. Some of the reports that I've read are just absolutely horrifying. Afghanis are being killed if they try to hide their young daughters from from being taken into forced marriages, killed for helping America, killed for being Christian, killed for having a Bible app on their phone, people handing their babies to American soldiers over razor wire because they want them to get out. It's absolutely horrific. Christians are still doing what they can to share the truth. They need our prayers, and we're going to have space for that later in our service during our prayer time. All of that makes me grateful to live in America. For all the faults of our nation, it's still a huge blessing, a great blessing to live here and have the freedoms that we enjoy. Afghanistan throws into sharp relief the value and importance of our freedoms and doing what we can to maintain them as well as doing what we can to preserve and reform, both preserve and reform our just system of government. And we're talking this morning about Christian submission and resistance to government. Just a nice, light subject this morning. I thought we would cover something kind of touchy-feely today, something that all gives us the warm fuzzies. A topic that nobody has any strong opinions about whatsoever, so there's no danger there at all. All kidding aside, this is a serious and it's a meaty subject, and so the sermon will be too, but I think that you're up to it. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and follow along as I read our text. Peter says, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him." "...to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not as people who use their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Be subject to the Lord's sake." to every human institution. That's the primary command and the point of our text. We're going to see that it's not an absolute command, but the main point is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to all those who are in authority over you. And we're going to walk through our text and see that main application. We'll look at some exceptions to the rule, and then we're going to conclude with an extended example. And my goal today is to help us learn how to think about the command to submit to our governing authorities. It's not to give answers in every circumstance. 
to give you the tools to help you think biblically about them. So let's set the context. Remember back to uh, last time we were here in verses 11 and 12, Peter urges disciples as sojourners and exiles here on earth to live in such a way that their good deeds bring glory to God, whether now or on the day of visitation. And, And part of those good deeds is submission to governing authority. But we're sojourners and exiles here. We live as citizens, we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So, does that mean that we can ignore earthly authority? Peter says, no. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he's going to address three of them in this next section. First, government, verse 13. Then, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. Then, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So, uh, he addresses government, he addresses sort of business, economics, he addresses the family. The command to be subject to every human institution has a broader application. God places us under various kinds of authority and He commands us to submit to them. So, wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey and honor your parents. Christians, submit to pastors. Citizens, submit to civil government. We could say students, submit to their teachers, their professors, and so forth. There are various spheres of authority, jurisdictions. We'll come back to that later. And we're to honor and submit to those in ways that are appropriate to each. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. How do we do that faithfully? That's the question we want to wrestle with today as it relates to government. And then in the weeks to come, we'll look at business and and family and and so forth. So first, the, the general rule. Submit to the governing authorities. This is the point of verses 13 to 17. The main command is to be subject. Everything else in these verses supports that main command. In fact, it's one sentence from verse 13 to verse 16. It's all supporting this main command. Our general inclination should be to obey governing authorities. That's what Christians do in most situations in our daily lives when we encounter civil authorities. We obey them. Yet it's not unqualified because we do it for the Lord's sake and as servants of God. Verse 13, verse 16. I want you to notice how God-centered this passage is. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse 13. This is the will of God. Verse 15. Be subject as God's servants. Verse 16. Fear God. Verse 17. Our submission to governing authorities is anchored in our submission to God. It's God's will. And God has a purpose in it. To shut the mouths of those who speak against Christians as evildoers. So when we think about submitting to authority, don't leave God out of the picture as if He doesn't have anything to do with it. He's got everything to do with it. He established the family, the church, the government. It's His will that we submit ourselves to these authorities. It's not just about us and them. It's about God. When we submit for the Lord's sake, we are saying that the Lord, we're exalting Him over the emperor, over the governor, over every human authority. In short, it's for God's glory. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake, whether it's to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him. Be subject to ruling authorities at every level, top to bottom, president, governors, mayors, police, and so on. Now, Peter briefly states the purpose of government in verse 14. Look there. 
These civil authorities are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That's their God-given purpose. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13, uh, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, his praise. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. Notice, twice, he's God's servant. He's under God's authority. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The primary purpose of government is to restrain evil. Government is given the sword to inflict just punishment on wrongdoers, to protect people in doing so, and deter other people from evil. This is all for your good. The government acts like a dam restraining a river a a torrent of sin that would break out if it wasn't restrained. God knows the nature of man and He established government as a necessary restraint against the sinfulness of mankind. Now, to promote that God-given purpose of government and to make sure that, that, that that isn't abused, their authority isn't abused, you and I as Christians have a God-given responsibility to do what we can to help the government govern in a way that goes along with God's authority, especially in America where we the people are part of the governing authorities. It's not just a a privilege, it's a responsibility that we have. Why be subject to the governing authorities? Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Remember the unbelievers we were speaking about, or that we saw last time in verse 12. They speak against Christians as unbelievers because they don't understand God and His ways. So they think that when we're doing good, we're doing evil, right? God's way to silence them is doing good. That's His emphasis through this whole letter. It's one of the main points that Peter makes. Be holy. If you look at his references to to righteous conduct, to being holy, to doing good, it's over ten times in the letter. Again and again and again and again, he comes back to this. That's God's will. Part of that is submitting to governing authorities. Then Peter tells us how we should submit in verses 16 and 17. Like this, not like that. So look at verse 16. Submit as one who is free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We're not free to do whatever we want, because we're servants of God. But we are free from sin. We're free from its power over us. We're free from Satan's rule over us. We're free from the rule of the worldly systems of this world. We're not under their control. No one is freer than the Christian. The emperor and the governor have no claim on you other than the fact that your true king has commanded you to submit to them. But your freedom is not to be used as a cover-up for evil, for rebellion. When we submit, we do it as free people, not under coercion, but willingly as God's servants, just like Jesus did when He went to the cross, as we're going to see next week. We submit as free, yet as servants of God. Then Peter ends with four brief commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, that seems random at first. Why in the world... Does he, in this context of submitting to authorities, talk about everyone, Christians, fearing, what's going on? Seems random, but it's genius. Look at this. 
Honor all men. We're to treat everyone with dignity and respect because they're created in God's image. Even sinners should be showed honor as human beings. Well, how do we honor a thief or a murderer? Part of the way that we honor them is by giving them a fair trial. Part of the way that we honor them is by giving them a just punishment. One that is fitting for their crimes. So we honor every person. And every person in authority should be honored in a way that's appropriate for their role. We don't submit to pastors, policemen, parents, and professors in exactly the same way. There there is a kind of, of submission and honor that is appropriate for each of them. So honor everyone, he says. Then he says, love the brotherhood. There's a special affection for believers. Now Peter's not saying that we don't love our enemies as Jesus taught. What he's saying here is that Believers have a special claim on our love. So we're told, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of the faith, Galatians 6.10. We've got a higher obligation to our fellow believers. Then we get fear God. That's our highest obligation. We don't fear man, but God. We don't submit out of fear of man. We submit because we fear God who is supreme. Amen? We're reminded here then that the ultimate loyalty belongs to God alone. Then finally, last, he puts honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Peter says honor the emperor just like he says honor everyone else. He's putting the emperor on the same ground as all people. The implication is he's just a man like everybody else. This this is a swipe against the emperor cult when they claim to be divine. We don't worship the government. We don't treat it like God. So he puts honoring the emperor in its proper place. That's why I think this is so genius because this is another way for Peter to show that submission to governing authorities is not absolute because our highest obligation is to fear God. Yet, at the same time, he balances that and he makes it clear that citizens, being citizens of heaven doesn't mean that we don't have to obey our earthly authorities. Now, submission to authority is the basic command here in this text. Even when we don't agree with all of the policies of the people in authority, so long as they don't contradict Scripture. Now, if we only obey when and where we like it, or it makes sense to us, then we're not really in submission. We've made ourselves king. We're supreme. This is very clear when we think about a family, right? Kids submit to their parents, even when they don't see the reason for it, even when they don't like what their parents are telling them to do, the children are still to submit to their parents. That's the right thing. That should be their base attitude. They need a good reason, a biblical reason not to obey their parents. Their parents need to be telling them something that, to do something that God forbids. Now, You might not like paying such high property taxes in Illinois. But while you live here under this jurisdiction, you pay them. You submit to the governing authorities, even though you might disagree with the policy. You might think it's too high. You might think it's a bad policy. And you definitely dislike it. I do. But we still submit in this case. We submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's our baseline. We're going to get to some exceptions in a minute, but we've got to see the general rule first. 
The general inclination and the posture of our hearts as Christians should be to obey those in authority over us. Now, if you're like me, you might not like the sound of that. This text is addressing our spirit of rebellion against authority, especially institutional authority, which is so prevalent in our society today. At bottom, the human heart is sinful and rebellious against God. It's been that way since Adam and Eve. It's why Jesus, it's what Jesus had to save us from. Because humans have rebellious spirits, we need restraint, authority, order. So much so, God gave us the family, the church, and the government. And He puts us under all three of them. Our lives should be marked by submission, like Jesus. Ultimately, submission to God and flowing out of our submission to Him, submission to every legitimate authority in our lives. Our chafing at this scripture. If, if in your hearts you were feeling like, I don't like this, give me the exceptions. Our chafing at this scripture, our desire immediately to go to the exception is proof of how rebellious our human hearts really are. So we've got to see the rule first. But that leads to a question. How do we know when we should practice godly submission, even when we disagree? And how do we know when we should practice godly resistance? So let's look at point two, the exception. When to resist governing authorities. This is based on verse 13 and verses 16 and 17. Now we said that this isn't an absolute command. Think about this. If we always had to obey government in everything they say in all circumstances, this would lead us to some very, very dark places. There would be no recourse against tyranny. Ever. So when is it not only appropriate, but good and right to refuse to submit to our governing authorities? Let me suggest three times and then give some illustrations with each one. First... When governing authority does something unjust or against God's will, and then it then forfeits its authority in that case, and it's to be resisted. Christians are God's servants first. Therefore, we have a standard by which to assess the dictates of government, namely God's Word, the Bible. Ordinarily, believers keep the commands of those in authority over them. But if they command what is evil or forbid what is good, then as servants of God, believers must refuse to obey. So, Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill the Hebrew baby boys when they were born. It's kind of a tongue twister. Hebrew baby boys when they were born. <laughs> they resisted that command and they were praised and blessed for it. Exodus 1. Daniel refused to obey King Darius who made it illegal to pray to anyone but him. Daniel 6. Remember when King Saul made a rash and foolish vow, stupid vow, he was going to kill his own son, Jonathan, who accidentally broke it by eating some honey, but he didn't know what was going on. And the people stepped in and said, you will not harm a single hair on his head. 1 Samuel 14, 45. Were those people wrong because they refused to submit to King Saul? No. When a ruler's actions are unjust or contrary to God's will, they're to be resisted. We don't submit. If a child is being abused by his father, we don't tell that child, submit to your authority. A recent example of this is the government telling churches they can't meet. Now, initially churches complied with this because we had no idea just how serious COVID was or was not. But as the data came out, churches began to say, 
we're going to go ahead and meet anyway despite your orders not to, like John MacArthur's church in California. It's an example of the state forbidding us from doing something that God commands, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. As some churches said, we're not going to submit to you in this case. We're going to resist. Peter and John were commanded to stop preaching the gospel in Acts 4 and 5. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you have to judge, but we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And later they said, we must obey God rather than men. If the government came and told us, you are not allowed to share the gospel publicly, we would resist. We'd not submit to that. So when a governing authority does something unjust or against God's will, it forfeits its authority in that case and it's to be resisted. Second, when a governing authority crosses into another jurisdiction it has no authority over, it's to be resisted. I mentioned jurisdictions earlier. God created four primary jurisdictions. The individual, the family, the church, and the government. Those are established by God. And each has its own God-given responsibilities, God-given authority. Because all authority is derived from God, Romans 13.1, we saw that. The authority of every jurisdiction is limited. Government authority is limit, limited by its God-given purpose and God-given authority. Only God has ultimate authority. So, when God established these jurisdictions, He did it for the proper order and functioning of, of life. It pleases Him when we live in accordance with His order. The governor of Texas, for example, cannot tell people in Minnesota what to do. Even if he issues an order, the people in Minnesota do not have to listen because his jurisdiction, the extent of his authority, ends at the state line. Now that's easy to see, but what about when there's no lines drawn on a map? So to borrow an illustration from Pastor Rob's book, what if the church decided to handle rowdy kids in Sunday school by spanking them? Parents would be rightly upset about this plan. And they would resist the policy because in this case, the church, the church is overstepping its jurisdictional boundaries. Parents are not opposed to having an orderly and safe Sunday school class. They want there to be a nice learning environment. They want their kids to be respectful of teachers. They don't, they don't have any problem with that. They resist because the church is overstepping its jurisdictional authority. They don't have the right to spank their kid. God hasn't given them the authority to discipline with the rod. Does the government have the right to tell you how to parent your children, positively speaking? This isn't about whether or not they should intervene if there's real abuse, because the government has a role in restraining evil. What I'm talking about is, can they tell you as a parent how to parent, positively speaking? Can they set your kid's bedtime? Can they demand that they eat broccoli on Tuesday nights? Can... can can they tell you what you have to teach your kid? Because you can make the argument, well, it's, it's, this is all for the good of the people. You see, if, if they have, if, if, the, if the goal is to, the, the total health, the total welfare of the people, then there is no limit to their authority. None. It's overstepping its jurisdiction of the family, in this case, instituted by God, and they're not in the best position to know what's best for my child. Here's another example of jurisdictions, one that's not hypothetical. Despite the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, which many people presume made 
gay marriage legal despite the fact that courts can't pass laws. Nevertheless, the state has no jurisdiction over marriage. They don't get to define marriage. That's both a contradiction of God's word and an encroachment on the jurisdiction of the church. That's why GFC will not obey. If the government came here and said, you have to marry this gay couple, we would say no and resist the governing authority. Resist because it goes against God's word. It's to do what God forbids. And it's crossing jurisdictional lines. And for that reason, it's unjust and it's to be resisted. Third, those two reasons, number one and number two, don't just apply to the individual the family, and the church. They also apply to the lesser magistrates in the government itself. So this brings us to the doctrine of lesser magistrates. What is that? What is a lesser magistrate? It's just a lower authority underneath a higher authority. So, the president is at the top, state governors are underneath, the governors are a lesser magistrate, a lesser authority. Mayors of the city are beneath them. They are lesser magistrates. We've, we've got this in our system of government. So what is this doctrine of the lesser magistrate? It teaches that when a higher authority makes an unjust, immoral law or policy or so forth, the lower authority, the lesser magistrate, has a duty, a responsibility to resist, to refuse to obey. They have that duty and responsibility because as a lesser governing authority, they themselves have been given the God-given purpose to punish evil and to praise what is good. So if the greater authority is doing something tyrannical, doing something evil, it's the responsibility of the lesser magistrate to step in because they have the same purpose from God. It's their responsibility to say, no, that's evil, that's wrong, we're not doing that. That means there's no excuse for a subordinate to go along with a superior in an evil action. It doesn't work to say, oh, I was just following orders. For responsibility if you're a lesser magistrate, to say no to that evil. So it's right for us as people to appeal to the lesser magistrate on our behalf to help resist tyranny, evil, when it comes at us. Let me give some examples. Prince Frederick of Saxony hid Martin Luther from Charles V. He was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And after... Worms, he issued what was called the Edict of Worms. This is what it said. For this reason, we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as the notorious heretic as he deserves, to be brought personally before us, or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us, whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceeding against the said Luther. Those who will help in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. That's an edict from the emperor. Prince Frederick of Saxony knew, and still he secretly took Martin Luther and hid him in defiance of the greater magistrate. It's a lesser magistrate standing in resistance 
to the tyranny of a greater, and we're glad that he did. Or, in the example of the abusive father, just a moment ago, when the mother interposes on behalf of her children, she's acting like a lesser magistrate. You see, God has given authority to mom and dad over the children. They submit to both. But the dad is the head of the home. If the dad is abusing the children and the mom interposes and resists the father, she's acting like a lesser magistrate in that case. And she is right to do so. Let me give one more that is not hypothetical. There's a billboard in Arizona that was put up by the organization called End Abortion Now. Started by Pastor Jeff Durbin at Apologia Church. They put up this billboard. It says, over 60 million dead. And then a huge writing underneath it, it says, ignore Roe. Why? Why ignore Roe? Here's Pastor Jeff's reasons. Our new billboard is up. Why ignore Roe? Number one, Roe violates the law of God. You shall not murder. Number two, Roe violates the Declaration of Independence. All are created equal and endowed with the right to life. Number three, Roe violates the constitutions. Courts cannot make law and no person shall be deprived of life without due process. Now listen here, because he's going to argue using this doctrine of the lesser magistrate. He says, unchecked federal power has led to a holocaust of innocence in our nation. When the federal government commands what God forbids, it is the duty of lesser authorities, lesser magistrates, and their states, the people, to resist and stand between the tyrant and the oppressed. Roe cannot be appeased, it must be opposed. Now, Apologia Church has been calling on their state legislatures, the lesser magistrates, to do this for a long time. So this is this idea of the lesser magistrate. So, biblically, civil government has limited authority, and it's limited vertically and horizontally, both above and to the sides. Vertically, it's limited by God. It's limited by His authority, the specific purpose that He's given to it. It's limited by His Word, which defines good and evil. They don't have the authority to do what is unjust or goes against His will. If they do, they cease to be a legitimate authority And in that case, we do not submit. We resist. But they're also limited horizontally in two directions. One is by other jurisdictions, and the other is by the lesser magistrate. They don't have the authority to take over the jurisdictions that God has established, and they're limited by lesser magistrates who stand in their way when they do, when they do what's unjust or contradicts Scripture or cross-jurisdictions. God's the ultimate authority, Therefore, this is not unquestioning or thoughtless submission. There are limits and boundaries both above and to the sides. Now, third point, an extended example. I'm going to try to apply our passage today. It's not enough for us to see what this text means, point one, or to add some general nuance, point two. We have to do the difficult work of thinking through specific applications. So let's try to apply all this to vaccine mandates and passports. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not arguing right now on the merits of whether or not you should take the vaccine. That's a whole other topic. If you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. I'm not talking about whether or not you should take it. I'm arguing here about whether or not you should be forced to take it. And I'm talking about that 
more narrowly because it has to do with this question of governing authorities. So, first, some individuals have a moral conviction based on their faith, a religious conviction because of what, what is in the vaccine or how it was made, because of the chemicals and carcinogens or because of the fetal stem cell lines that were used to manufacture it. Their conscience won't allow them to take it. That's a religious, moral, ethical conviction. For a Christian to go against his conscience or her conscience is a sin. 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. And to force them to take it would be an unjust mandate. It should be resisted on that basis. Now you could also argue along the lines of its safety and its efficacy. In the case of COVID vaccine, we don't know the full extent of the risks yet, short term and long term. We know it's not 100% effective and there might be ethical concerns. Okay? Based on those reasons, you could argue that there should be freedom of choice. But I don't think that's the best argument, because here's why. What if it was 100% safe, 100% effective, and 100% ethical? Okay? 100% safe, 100% effective, 100% ethical. Would that then give the government the authority to force you to take it? I think the answer is still no. So let's look at a different line of argument. Second, the role and authority that God gives to governments is limited, as we've seen. The government doesn't have the authority of ensuring the total health and welfare of all of its people. If it did, it would have unlimited authority and jurisdiction over every person's life. Third, God's established government in America does not grant legislative power to the executive branch. Executive orders aren't laws. They can't be used perpetually to subject citizens to rules and restrictions. It's an overreach of power even by the standards of our own system of government laid out in the Constitution. Fourth, the government, sorry, the Bible puts responsibility for stewarding the care of uh, our bodies, the health of our bodies into the jurisdiction of the individual and the families as it relates to children. So God created my body. I'm required to care for my body that God has given to me. That requires making choices related to my diet, my exercise, my health care. That's part of how we live and serve and honor God. So the Bible says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That instruction is given to individuals. Individuals are responsible to steward the care of their own health, not the government. Again, let us cleanse ourselves from every devilement of body and spirit. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Individuals are responsible for keeping their bodies free of defilement. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, individual, individual choice, do it all to the glory of God. Vaccine mandates are unjust because they contradict this aspect of God's divine will, that the individual is responsible under God for the care of their own body. Number five, the Bible never gives government the authority to force people to take a medicine. While God instructs us to to submit to governing authorities, they don't have the authority to require citizens against their will to put chemicals or medicines into their body. The government doesn't have that jurisdictional authority to force me or my kids to take a medication. It's an encroachment on this doctrine of jurisdictions. 
In the same way, it would be unjust for the government to mandate that I eat certain foods or that I exercise 30 minutes a day. I might choose to do those things, but to force me to do those things using government power is an overreach of their jurisdiction. It's an overstep of their authority. The same is true for vaccines. So, when a person or when the government oversteps or jurisdiction oversteps his authority and encroaches on another, it's acting unjustly and against God's will. Therefore, it's good and right to resist them. That is not disobeying Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2. In that case, it's also the duty of lesser magistrates and other jurisdictions to resist what goes against God's will. We listed numerous examples from the Bible and from history, both ancient and modern. Governor DeSantis is an example of the lesser magistrate doing this on vaccine mandates and passports. Now, regardless of whether or not you think that vaccines are the best thing ever or the worst thing ever, all Christians should be able to agree, I think, that vaccine mandates, passports, are unjust and illegitimate overreach of government authority into the jurisdiction of the family and the individual. And therefore, they should be resisted. We should not submit to those things. We should be free to make our own decisions about whether or not we'll get the vaccine. Again, I'm not, not making an argument about whether or not you should get it. I'm making an argument about whether you should be forced to get it. Now, you might think that the COVID-19 vaccine is awesome, effective, everyone should get it, and based on that, you think the vaccine mandate is a good idea. But what happens when the government wants to mandate something else out of concern for your health or the well-being of other people that you disagree with? Once we go down this road, we have no logical end to stop. The only end to that is tyranny. Some people would say, if, if you don't get the vaccine, you're not loving your neighbor. Well, first, even if you get it, it doesn't keep you from getting sick or transmitting it. But second, the command to love your neighbor goes in multiple directions. And in this case, it goes both ways. You could easily say if you love your neighbor, you would not force them to take a drug against their will. If you love your neighbor, you would stand against government overreach and maintain their freedom. That means we need more light from Scripture on this subject than just the truth to love your neighbor. That certainly applies, but that is not the final word on this issue. We need more. It's more complex than that. Let me wrap up with this. If the main point of our text today and the base posture of the Christian is sub- submission to authority, why take to- so much time to go through an illustration of when not to submit? Here are some good, good reasons for this. The first is to prevent straw man arguments. Right? You, you should submit to the government. That's your base posture. Or are you saying that you should obey the government in absolutely everything? No. It's limited. Clearly not. Our first allegiance is to God. The second is to show that this doctrine of submission to governing authorities can be complex. Sadly, we want simple answers for complex problems. And so we don't do the hard work of thinking through things. We just rush for the simple answer. And specific examples then help us avoid an overly simplistic understanding and overly simplistic application of texts like this one and like Romans 13. Third, because things are not simple, the third reason is to encourage caution and charity in how we think about and discuss the issues of our day. The more complex that things get, 
the more room there's going to be for genuine, well-intentioned, Bible-believing Christians to land in a different spot. So we need caution and charity. Caution in thinking it through carefully and charity in discussing our view with other people. We don't call people names. Other people might be jerks. They might be rude. They might be harsh. We must not be. It doesn't mean that you don't make your case, but you do it respectfully. Good and genuine Christians might differ on how they apply this text in different ways. We're going to agree on the theology, but the application we might differ. Don't automatically assume that if someone disagrees with you, they're being unfaithful. Or they're being unloving. Or they're being led blindly along. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Remember, the enemy wants to use this to divide, to divide God's people. Four, the fourth reason is to actually support the principle that our first attitude and response should be to obey those in authority over us at all levels unless we have very good reason not to. We should be cautious in resisting those in authority over us without thinking the issues through carefully. It doesn't matter if we don't like it. That's not sufficient grounds for resistance. It doesn't matter if we don't agree with it, if we disagree with it. Our reason alone is not sufficient grounds to resist. There must be biblical grounds to resist or we find ourselves not just disobeying our authorities but disobeying God. So, how should Christians live in a hostile world to their faith? God's strategy is holiness. Part of that is being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter's main point in this text is be subject for the Lord's sake to your governing authorities. Submit with proper motives, within proper limits. That's God's will for you. That by doing so, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people and bring glory to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. And I pray, God, that you would use it in our lives, God, to, to transform the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we treat people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to faithfully apply this text. Lord, I pray for us that we would honor everyone and love the brotherhood and fear God and honor the emperor. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.